the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll share a classic interview with Dr. Craig Evans. He's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. But we'll also wind our way through some of the top news stories of the day, beginning in Multnomah County, where leaders announced today a face mask mandate uh, as part of the, the county's plan to combat the rise in cases and hospitalizations because of the Delta variant of COVID-19, which apparently dominates here in Oregon. On the 26th of July, Multnomah County recommended that everyone ages five years and older wear face masks indoors, regardless of vaccination status. Well, with the COVID cases continuing to surge, uh, people will now be required to wear face masks inside businesses like grocery stores, restaurants, bars and gyms. The mandate begins Friday, August the 13th. So this is no longer optional. It will be mandatory in Multnomah County. At this time, the county is not instituting capacity limits for businesses, but they are considering that. Well, the U.S. is now averaging 100,000 new COVID-19 infections per day, up from 11,000 cases a day in late June, according to the Associated Press over the weekend. Multnomah County has seen its um, case numbers increase over the same time period. Over the past four weeks, Multnomah County has averaged 546 new cases per week, up from 136 in the last uh, week of June, according to the county's regional COVID-19 data dashboard. Well, last week, the Oregon Health Authority released a report that said 19 percent of the 12,500 cases reported in Oregon in July were breakthrough cases, which occurs when a fully vaccinated person is infected with the virus. And during a press conference on Friday, Dr. Melissa Sutton from the Oregon Health Authority's uh, medical director of respiratory viral pathogens said the uh, 4,100 breakthrough cases reported in Oregon through July are a very small percentage of the 2.3 million fully vaccinated Oregonians. However, they did make the point that those who are fully vaccinated can, uh, with very few symptoms, um, carry the virus and make others who are unvaccinated more vulnerable. She also pointed out that the best protection from COVID and the Delta variant remains the vaccine. A study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention determined that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were 91 to 96 percent effective and the Johnson and Johnson vaccine 84 to 85 percent effective in reducing the risk of hospitalization. Now, it's gone from contracting COVID-19, the new variant, to hospitalization. To date, more than 90 percent of cases that have required hospitalization in Oregon have occurred in unvaccinated people. The Oregon Health Authority said for breakthrough cases, 7 percent required hospitalization and 1 percent have died. So you are better protected, but not fully protected uh, for the most part. Meanwhile, in the state of Washington, Governor Inslee announced COVID-19 vaccine mandate for most state health workers. As the pandemic there persists with surging Delta variant, 
Governor Inslee is announcing a new vaccination mandate, telling most state employees and health care workers to get vaccinated or find another job. The mandate is also being adopted by King County and the city of Seattle, includes those working in treatment facilities, assisted living facilities, most contractors, volunteers and other positions that have an an, um, on-site presence in any of these workplace settings. According to Governor Inslee's office, there will be no alternative for workers who do not want to get the vaccine, meaning those who still choose not to get the shot will no longer be employed with the state or private business. These workers will have to get their uh, final shot by the 18th of October. By the way, um, we were told by Multnomah County that this new standard will be vigorously enforced. Uh, There could be up to a fine of $1,000 and um, I think you're subject to arrest as well if you do not comply with the Multnomah County uh, new standards. Now, we'll see how Multnomah County residents comply. But if you're in the grocery store as of Friday, you must be masked. If you're in a public place where there are people um, and you're indoors, you must be masked. That's the order that was announced earlier today. Meanwhile, videos from Portland showed a crowd of demonstrators violently shutting down an event where Christians gathered to pray on the waterfront before another clash on Saturday afternoon involving anti-fascists and alleged Proud Boy members uh, throwing projectiles at each other on a city street. Police officers didn't intervene in either confrontation besides a squad car sounding its siren just feet away. We've declawed the police, if you will. Well, the first instance of violence happened on Saturday at an open-air event planned at Tom McCall Waterfront Park near the battleship Oregon Memorial to be hosted by um, Arthur Pawlowski, a traveling preacher who's been arrested in Canada for holding in-person worship services in violation of coronavirus restrictions. Well, several Antifa Twitter accounts tweeted about the planned event, the Post Millennial reported, And videos posted online show that a crowd of demonstrators dressed in all black um, block attire showed up at the waterfront to confront the worshipers. Their faces were covered. They destroyed or at least damaged equipment. They harassed individuals. It was really quite a scene. I've seen video uh, from it. Dozens of people carrying black umbrellas and shields are seeing spraying red and yellow gas at the group of worshipers. As other Antifa members steal sound equipment, lawn chairs, wagons left across the lawn by families who had come to listen to the pastor speak. I won't quote what was said, but um, they invoked the name of Jesus in a way that would be considered blasphemous. Children, including toddlers, were in attendance at the uh, worship event when the group's demonstrators started throwing projectiles, including eggs. One woman told a videographer at the scene, I saw the video so I can witness as well. They threw a flash bomb into the crowd of uh, kids who were out there. A male worshiper said a pastor who had walked up to ask the group of demonstrators to stop was pepper sprayed. A woman is seen attending the pastor's eyes covered um, in orange substance. The Portland Tribune reported that members of the far right group Proud Boys later descended on the worship event as well, clashed with Antifa with the worshipers sort of in the middle. Additional videos circulated online by independent journalist Andy No shows the clashes carried on to um, a nearby city street and the alleged Proud Boy members seen dressed in yellow and black garb fired a paintball gun at several Antifa members. Well, a squad car from the Portland Police Bureau pulled up and flashed its siren, but seemingly had no impact in stopping the confrontation. A man is heard yelling at the officers behind the wheel, do your job. 
But their job these days has been scaled back considerably. Well, once the groups um, converged at the waterfront, the fight broke out, but the uh, confrontation there was over prior to any police response. Portland Police Bureau spokesman Derek Carmen told Coin Television. Well, as the groups left, there was a report of another small fight that was over prior to police response. No arrests were made. No one came forward to report any crimes uh, that um, we were made aware of. Police had no interaction with either group. Uh, screenshots shared by Andy No uh, showed that another Antifa-affiliated Twitter account later tweeted that members threw the sound equipment into the Willamette River, stole sandwiches, water bottles belonging to the Christian group before uh, then giving them back uh, out to the homeless. So the waterfront event disrupted. My understanding is there was another event on Sunday. Um, however, it did not seem to have erupted in quite the same way that was seen on Saturday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a few moments ago, you heard Jim Daly invite you to join them. He and a group of folks from Focus on the Family for Embrace Grace. But I also want to ask you whether or not you'd like to get away for a few days with your family to Colorado Springs and meet our friends at Focus on the Family during your trip. Well, we're giving away a Focus on the Family VIP experience that includes round-trip airfare for you and up to three family members to Colorado Springs, three nights at Great Wolf Lodge, VIP tour of Focus on the Family headquarters, lunch with Jim Daly, and an opportunity to sit on a, in rather on a Focus on the Family program, along with a $300 Visa gift card. Log on to the KPDQ Family Club to enter today at kpdq.com. Um, sounds like a pretty fun event. I failed to mention that the Washington County government is reinstituting a requirement that county employees and visitors alike wear masks in county buildings, regardless of your vaccination status. Well, with cases and hospitalizations in Washington County trending downward, the county lifted its mask requirement in public buildings in late June. But as the Delta variant drives a new surge, County Administrator Tanya Ang, she says the county government is again requiring that people mask up in buildings like the Washington County Courthouse, the Charles D. Cameron Public Service Building, the Washington County Sheriff's Office, and others. So keep your eyes and ears open in Washington County as things are changing there, as they will change on Friday here in Multnomah County. Meanwhile, the Dixie Wildfire is now the largest in California's history. Hard to imagine they've had so many. Thousands of homes were threatened by the Northern California blaze on Sunday. That's uh, which just cited data from the California Fire and the National Interagency Fire Center. The fire's been raging for days, fueled by record dry conditions in the area in recent weeks, as well as high winds. The fire outlook continues to reflect warmer and drier conditions, leading to the high potential for severe wildfire activity throughout the West, throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall. That's a quote from the Fire Center in a statement on Sunday. Widespread high temperatures with periods of lightning activity continue to exacerbate the wildfire situation. 
Well, the Senate advanced the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan and the first of two key procedural votes on Saturday, moving closer to a final vote on that legislation. The Senate voted 67 to 27 to advance the bill, with 18 Republicans joining Democrats for a filibuster-proof majority. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was among the Republicans who voted in favor. A second procedural vote will be needed to close some debate on the potential amendments to the bill. And while a vote is expected this weekend, the precise timing is pretty unclear. Various amendments are still under consideration, including dueling amendments dealing with uh, cryptocurrency and another that would allow 30 percent of unused federal coronavirus aid funds to be spent on infrastructure. There are many outstanding amendments that are important that would improve this legislation and that deserve votes before the Senate is asked to vote on final passage of the bill, Mitch McConnell told reporters earlier in the day. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer vowed to keep the Senate in session until votes are held on the bipartisan infrastructure bill and Democrats' partisan plan, which would not require a single Republican vote to pass. We can get this done the easy way or the hard way, Schumer said in a floor speech on Saturday. In neither case, the Senate will stay in session until we finish our work. It's up to my Republican colleagues how long that takes. Well, the Biden administration on Friday announced that it's going to extend the pause on federal student loan repayment interest and collections until the 31st of January 2022. Now, the freeze had been set to expire at the end of September, but like most things, it's being extended. The payment pause has been a lifeline to uh, allow millions of Americans to focus on their families, health and finances instead of student loans during the national emergency. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cordona, said in a statement, as our nation's economy, he went on to say, continues to recover from a deep hole, this final extension, final, he says, will give students and borrowers the time they need to plan for restart and ensure a smooth pathway back to repayment. It is the department's priority to support students and borrowers during this transition and ensure that they have the resources they need to access affordable, high-quality higher education. The administration said it will be the final extension of that relief. With the Senate scheduled to pause for a month next week and the priority being placed on spending trillions of borrowed dollars for infrastructure, the fate of many bills may be that uh, of waiting until later this fall. One of those caught in the waiting game was introduced early on in the session of the Democrat-controlled 117th Congress and the big labor-backed PRO, uh, which is short for Protecting the Right to Organize Act, has already managed to narrowly clear the House on a nearly party-line vote, 225 to 206. It had an initial Senate hearing last week. Well, as described by its um, Congress.gov entry, the PRO Act is a wish list for big labor, in particular rewriting the definitions of employee, supervisor, and employer, allowing for so-called secondary strikes and, most importantly, overriding the right-to-work protections that 27 states currently grant their workers. In other words, they don't have to join or form a union if they choose not to. Perhaps that's why union workers protested in favor of the bill outside their Republican senators' offices in right-to-work states like 
like North Dakota and West Virginia, among others. Now, those who are in the gig economy have reason to worry as well. The PRO Act borrows heavily from California's AB5, which, when passed, decimated the freelance industry in that state by requiring companies to classify independent contractors as full-time workers. That California bill has since been amended with certain caveats, much of the to the chagrin of Uber drivers who pulled a one-day nationwide wildcat strike last week to show support for the PRO Act. Other entrepreneurs, though, stand opposed because they see franchising as a way to build generational wealth. And that becomes much more difficult if the PRO Act passes. Again, we're redefining pretty much everything with regard to employment. Uh, If you want to be about equal opportunity, it's going to cause a lot of people not to participate in that wealth creation, said one businesswoman, Carolyn Thurston, regarding the PRO Act. It will prevent that, especially people who are women or black. They will now have more things that um, they have to overcome, end quote. But the um, PRO Act uh, or PR executive Richard Berman truly hit the nail on the head when it uh, came to the purpose of the PRO Act, saying the real issue for unions is the American workforce understanding that promised benefits of union membership membership are not worth the price of the excess baggage that comes with signing on. Unions are spending members' dues in increasing partisan ways that generally don't directly benefit workers or necessarily reflect their priorities. Berman goes on to say the priority is no longer wages and working conditions. It's getting Democrats elected to office despite member political preferences or opinion on whether their dues should be spent on politics. Beyond supplying campaigns uh, with paid foot soldiers over the past 10 years, unions have spent more than $1.6 billion in dues to benefit left-wing special interests, end quote. Well, and uh, as unions uh, strive to attract a different sort of worker than the lunch pail factory worker of old, their pet issues have evolved as well. A Real Clear Investigations piece by Bill McMorris uh, revealed that big labor is spending as much, if not more, of its efforts in organizing white-collar and non-traditional workers, attracting them with advocacy on woke social issues. When the head of the AFL-CIO is putting out a statement entitled, The AFL-CIO Must Fight for Trans Lives Inside and Outside the Labor Movement, it's clear that union priorities are changing and alliances are Shifting. Just ask the union workers locked out in the cold by Joe Biden's cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline how they feel about trans rights. But while the uh, progress of the PRO Act seems to have stalled, the um, deviousness of uh, supporters has no end. Given the vastness of a 2,700-page infrastructure bill that few have had the time to read or the will to read, not to mention other massive omnibus spending measures that may come down the pike, we may wake up one day and find out the PRO Act was adopted as part of some other must-pass bill or enacted by a stroke of the feeble-minded, well, pen of the president as an executive order. Either way, it will uh, be a day where the dreams of millions who want to use their abilities and hard work to make something of themselves will be dashed by the pursuit of one party for raw political power. The uh, Again, the act, the pro act, will continue to follow it as it um, does or does not make its way through Congress. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Dr. Craig Evans, author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Governor Cuomo's top aide has resigned as the embattled governor faces multiple misconduct allegations. The top aide of the embattled uh, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has resigned from her position following the report from the state's attorney general concluding that the governor had sexually harassed multiple women, according to multiple reports. It's been the greatest honor of my life to serve the people of New York for the past 10 years. Melissa DeRosa said in a statement on Sunday evening, adding that the past two years have been emotionally and mentally trying. Well, earlier in the week, New York Attorney General Letitia James released an extensive report accusing the governor of sexual misconduct. DeRosa's departure was significant. She was seen as one of the governor's most competent and trusted top aides. The New York Times wrote that she stood by Cuomo for years, even as his inner circle shrank in size and many of the top staffers who had helped first elect him in 2010 left the administration. Well, the co-founder of Time's Up, an advocacy group created amid the Me Too movement to combat sexual harassment, resigned today following reports that she was involved in an effort to discredit a woman who accused the New York governor of harassment. Roberta Kaplan, who co-founded the group and heads its legal defense fund, said in her resignation letter that her work as a lawyer prevents her from publicly responding to questions about her involvement in that effort. She represents former top Cuomo aide Melissa DeRosa and uh, both reviewed a draft letter aimed at discrediting Cuomo accuser Lindsay Boylan, according to a report by the New York Attorney General Letitia James. I have reluctantly come to the conclusion that an active law practice is no longer compatible with serving on the board of, at Time's Up at this time, and I hereby resign, Kaplan wrote in her resignation letter. Unfortunately, recent events have made it clear that even our apparent allies in the fight to advance women can turn out to be abusers, end quote. Well, James report accused Cuomo of harassing at least 11 women, some of whom were state employees in violation of state and federal law. The board of Time's Up has acu- uh, was accused rather of failing to heed the outcry from survivors in an open letter published on Medium with signatories including Charlotte Bennett and New York State Senator Alessandria Biaggi. Two members of the board, Hillary Rosen and Anna Navarro, are contributors to CNN, which employs the governor's brother, Chris, Chris Cuomo. Well, in a separate uh, development on Monday, two board chairs of LGBT advocacy group Human Rights Campaign announced that the group had hired a law firm to investigate its president over his involvement with Cuomo. James's uh, report alleged that HRC President Alfonso David gave copies of Boylan's personal file, which he obtained in 2018 when working in the governor's office to Cuomo's aides. So the uh, orbit around the governor uh, continues to spiral. And other developments on the impeachment, New York Democrats cannot slow walk the governor's ouster after the condemning AG report, they're saying. And Governor Cuomo's executive assistant came forward alleging the New York governor broke the law. CNN's Stetler admits the scandal has been a CNN conundrum, but defends Chris Cuomo for tuning out the family drama. 
of which he is a part. Time Magazine's Molly Ball says the walls are closing in on Governor Cuomo and she predicts an ugly political fight. In other news, Dr. Fauci berates a mass outdoor gathering in South Dakota, but gives President Obama's birthday bash a pass. Well, social media users piled onto Dr. Fauci for what many felt was a double standard when it comes to what type of gathering he criticizes. No comment from St. Fauci on Obama's soiree last night with a few hundred of his closest friends. Or how about uh, Lollapalooza last week in Chicago? One social media user said in reaction to the comments from Dr. Fauci, critical of the annual Sturgis motorcycle rally. Or I guess it's selective festivities because the virus knows and only attacks those who fit the um, narrative. Well, the remarks come in response to the doctor's comments expressing concern about South Dakota's upcoming Sturgis motorcycle rally on Sunday's Meet the Press with host Chuck Todd speculating the rally could become a super spreader event. I'm very concerned, Chuck, that we're going to see another surge related to that rally, Fauci said. Well, he admitted that it was understandable that people want to do the kind of things that they want to do, though he called on rally goers to consider their impact on the spread of COVID-19. There comes a time when you're dealing with a public health crisis that could involve you, your family and everyone else, that something supersedes that needs to do exactly what um, you want to do. But apparently that only applies to certain events and certain classes of people. Well, Fauci told uh, Sturgis, the motorcycle rally attendees, uh, that the health uh, crisis supersedes the needs of what you want to do. If they had been invited to the former president's party, however, that might have been a different story. Fauci also said that allowing the virus to replicate could make a worse variant that could impact the vaccinated. On COVID vaccinations, Victor Davis Hansen says Team Biden should look in the mirror before pointing fingers. Well, a judge is sided with a Norwegian cruise line in a suit over vaccination proof in Florida. A federal judge has, um, for now, sided with the Norwegian cruise line holding limited in its bid to invalidate Florida's rule that bars businesses from requiring proof of COVID-19 vaccination from their customers. U.S. District Judge Kathleen Williams in Miami on Sunday granted the cruise operators request for a preliminary injunction that prevents the enforcement of the ban on its vessels departing from the state. The company last month sued Florida's uh, Surgeon General Scott um, Rivkeys in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. And while litigation is a strategic tool of last resort, the company has fought to do what we believe is right and in the best interest of the welfare of our guests, crew, and communities we visit. The Norwegian General Counsel wrote, well, the Florida Department of Health and the Florida governor's office didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. The decision comes as Norwegian is set to offer cruises from Florida to the Caribbean starting the 15th of this month. Florida is a cruise hub that in 2019 accounted for about 60 percent of the cruise embarkments from the U.S., according to the industry group Cruise Lines International Association. Uh, in other developments, Carnival Cruises' newest ship launched from a Florida port, and Florida has accused the CDC of violating a cruise ship case injunction. Meanwhile, an Alaska cruise ship passenger has tested positive for COVID-19. Well, in Omaha, Nebraska, flooding, seven people escaped after being trapped inside elevators. I can't think of 
a more terrifying scenario, although there are plenty. Portland saw Antifa descend on a Christian worship event, clashing with the Proud Boys in the street and in the park. Team USA tops China in the medal count as the Tokyo Olympics wrapped up with a closing ceremony. The Gates-Epstein relationship may have been more complicated than originally thought, and college is supposed to close the wealth gap for black Americans. But according to a new report, the opposite has happened. College was supposed to close that wealth gap. Um, Black college graduates in their 30s have lost ground over three decades, the result of student debt and sluggish income growth. The dollar hits a four-month high on the euro as markets bet on an early or earlier Fed taper. And not surprisingly, President Biden, rather, his electric car ambition is facing real-world roadblocks. The so-called infrastructure bill's boost to the economy is likely to be limited if it exists at all. Well, 18 Republicans joined all 50 Senate Democrats to advance the massive infrastructure bill. The story notes with the filibuster overcome, the Senate will hold 50 hours of debate on the bill before a final vote on Tuesday. Until then, the Senate will hold a marathon voting session in which lawmakers will be allowed to introduce unlimited amendments. In those final hours, senators are expected to come to an agreement on cryptocurrency regulations and how to fund the bill fully. An analysis by the Congressional Budget Office estimates that more than half of the package, its uh, package's $550 billion in new spending, is unfunded, despite what senators are saying. Well, Texas Dems are securing a restraining order to prevent arrests as or if they return to the state of Texas. We'll tell you more about that when we come back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Dr. Craig Evans, Jesus and the Manuscripts, right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Democratic lawmakers who fled Texas to stop Republicans from passing a voting bill can begin returning home this week after a state district judge issued an order prohibiting their arrest. The House Democrats obtained a temporary restraining order on Sunday, blocking the GOP from having them forcibly returned to the House chamber. The restraining order prevents the lawmakers from being arrested, detained or confined in any way for two weeks. Well, the Democrats will now be able to continue to obstruct the legislation until at least the 20th of August, when Republicans will have an opportunity to challenge the order in a scheduled hearing. Well, 57 Texas House Democrats initially traveled to Washington, D.C. on the 12th of July on private charter jets using their physical absence to deny Republicans of their needed quorum. They plan to hide out in the Capitol and fight for federal voting legislation until the Texas special uh, legislative session expired. The governor's vowed to just simply call another one. Well, of the group that fled the state, roughly 26 remain. State Representative Ron Reynolds reportedly said that on Sunday, uh, which would um, not be enough to prevent Republicans from moving ahead this week. Uh, However, the GOP now has no way to bring the Democrats back into the chamber for the new special session that began on Saturday. Well, as Republicans have control of the uh, state House and Senate, as well as the governor's office, the Democrats only power is to delay tactics 
uh, is de- uh, delay tactics and obstruction. And by the way, a few of them, two or three, went to Portugal to vacation because they had non-refundable tickets in their um, suffering for the cause. Well, the Pentagon is requiring members of the U.S. military to get vaccinated against the coronavirus, according to a defense official. All military troops will have until the 15th of next month to get vaccinated, according to a memo first reported by the AP. It could uh, be even sooner, depending on developments regarding vaccine approval or the spread of COVID-19, says the defense secretary Lloyd Austin in a memo expected to uh, Uh, That went out rather to the troops today. I will seek the president's approval to make the vaccines mandatory no later than mid-September or immediately upon FDA approval, whichever comes first. I will not hesitate to act sooner or recommend a different course to the president if I feel the need to do so. He went on to add to defend this nation. We need a healthy and ready force. Well, the Pfizer vaccine is expected to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration in early September. Should that not happen, Austin could seek a presidential waiver to require troops to get the vaccine. Now, the FDA has issued an emergency approval, uh, but that is different than the standard approval that one expects of vaccines from the FDA. But again, that is expected in early September. Troops already have uh, other required vaccines. The AP reported that depending on where they are located, troops could be, receive up to 17 mandatory vaccines. So for those in the military, this would not be untoward. So far, more than 74% of the Navy have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. Vaccine. Other branches of the military lag behind with 65% of active duty Air Force, 60% of Air Force Reserves, and 50% of uh, Army. Unvaccinated troops currently have to follow protocols that include wearing masks, maintaining social distance, and abiding by travel restrictions. Well, two weeks um, to slow the spread. That was the original rationale for the lockdown, masking and social distancing. Two weeks, prevent transmission of the coronavirus so that Americans could be assured that we would uh, not overwhelm hospital capacity, causing needless deaths. Wait until a vaccine is available. Well, that was the next goalpost, an admonition to continue to take precautions to avoid spreading the coronavirus until a vaccine could be developed. Well, despite the warning of COVID-19 pessimists that uh, vaccine would take years to development, despite the unjustified alarmism of uh, figures like, um, well, the current vice president, who was at the time a senator, that the Trump administration would skew the vaccine protocols to achieve political ends. Vaccines were miraculously developed. And by the way, Trump did not develop them with his own hand, so she needn't be too concerned. Wait until every adult has a chance to get the vaccine. Well, that was the final rationale for caution. And as states began to uh, uh, tranch out vaccines by the millions, um, every person above the age of 12 in the United States was given the opportunity to get vaccinated. Well, as of today, over 90 percent of adults over the age of 65 The most at-risk population in the United States have been vaccinated, and more than 70% of all Americans over the age of 18 have been vaccinated as well. And yet, we're told that we're experiencing a massive COVID-19 crisis, a new variant 
We've been told that the vaccinated must mask up again, that the unvaccinated should be barred from public establishments, that children must be masked in schools and virtually at all times, according to some. We've been told that America faces doom and death on a daily basis and that we're seeing a crisis akin to the last wave of the coronavirus in January. We're masking up, checking vaccine cards in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York. The statistics, um, well, they raise some questions. According to the seven-day rolling average, as calculated by the New York Times, fewer than 400 Americans per day are dying of COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, well over 3,000 were. In Washington, D.C., the total population is 692,000. That number is zero. In San Francisco County, total population 875,000. That number is zero. In Los Angeles County, total population 10 million. That number is nine. In New York City, total population 8.4 million. That number is three. Well, Ben Shapiro says the current data variant uh, spike has resulted in a massive uh, case count, particularly in Florida. But deaths are not following cases. And if the United States follows the pattern of the United Kingdom and the Netherlands, we're likely to see the case count begin to crater in the next few weeks. Now, those who are vaccinated are not dying of COVID-19. Their death rate is minuscule. Those who are unvaccinated have chosen not to vaccinate. They're independent adults capable of determining their own approach to risk and reward, all of which requires us to ask the question, when are we done? When are we done telling children to mask up to protect adults who don't want to vaccinate? When are we done telling businesses to close up or bar customers based on vaccination status? When are we done with mask mandates? Data suggests that mask mandates are less effective, even if masking is sometimes useful. With evidence-free social distancing rules, six feet is pure conjecture, with the ever-vacillating Uh, Delphic pronouncements of Dr. Anthony Fauci. We've hit the goalposts. Every adult now has the capacity to protect himself. There are no other realistic goalposts. Zero zero COVID-19 cases was never a realistic goal. When is the job of government done? And yet our public health experts continue to promote more and more outrageous restrictions. This week, National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins, it was actually last week, went so far as to recommend that vaccinated parents mask up in their own homes around their own children. He since backpedaled from that. There's no limiting principle to this, no end goal. There is only a bureaucratic and political Elite unwilling to treat citizens as adults, recognize their own limitations and leave us all to, well, our own devices. And if we accept that, we deserve nothing less than subjugation to their paternalistic control. Well, there are those who hold to the view that we've had enough while others comply for their own sake and for the sake of others. We are a divided nation And uh, many of the authorities are not very helpful in clarifying what's in our best interest. Meanwhile, the National Education Association, America's largest teachers union, is suing a Rhode Island mom for seeking information about what her kindergartner will be taught in school. Both the National Education Association, Rhode Island, and the National Education Association, South Kingstown, the union's local branch, are suing Nicole Solis, after she filed public record requests with the South Kingston uh, School District to learn what students are being taught regarding critical race theory. It appears the teacher union 
want a court to say I can't get the public information that I'm requesting because it will somehow harm teachers. Well, the complaint uh, was filed with the Rhode Island Supreme Court on Monday and a constable arrived at Solis home on Wednesday to deliver papers informing the mother of the lawsuit. I just got served with a lawsuit from a teacher's union. Uh, Solis wrote on Twitter, throwing down the gauntlet. Are we? Game on. Well, on Thursday, the union also filed for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction against the mother. The legal action is intended to prohibit the South Kingstown School Board from responding to public records requests referencing in the verified complaint unless and until a determination can be made that such documents are required to be released pursuant to the Access to Public Records Act. The court filings read. Now, why wouldn't the teachers union want a parent whose child is actually being taught in kindergarten in a particular school to know what's going to be taught? Well, today, the teacher union um, NEA filed another lawsuit against me, the mom says, this time a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction. Will teachers unions bullying moms be the everyday thing now? Well, over the past few months, Solis, who's the mother, has filed more than 200 public records requests with the South Kingstown School District, about 30 miles south of Providence, Rhode Island. In April, the principal of the elementary school told her to file records requests after the mother emailed the principal asking for a copy of the curriculum and other information about the school district. Well, the mom was told that due to the breadth of her questions, she needed to file records requests. Well, she did that. However, she's now being sued. She's now being sued. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn producing Clark Hilton Engineering. This hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Dr. Craig Evans, author, author rather of Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. That's coming up in our next segment here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Twitter is suspending conservatives for their scientific take on gender. First, they temporarily shut out Ali Beth Stuckey, and now they've blocked the account of Eric Erickson uh, from the sense-restored Ali Stuckey, Man O oh Man, um, uh, she stated the same biological fact that was uh, mentioned by others and got suspended. Science is um, very triggering, uh, apparently, on Twitter, or Twitter rather. Franklin Graham points out that censored by Twitter is uh, for calling a biological male a man. Conservative Christian author and podcaster Ali Beth Stuckey was locked out of her Twitter account yesterday for simply stating a fact when referencing Laurel Hubbard, the transgender weightlifter who competed in the Olympic Games for New Zealand. She said he's still a man and men shouldn't compete against women in weightlifting. That's a true statement, but it's not woke or politically correct. So Twitter removed the tweet from Ali's account and temporarily banned her from the platform. Ali said, as a Christian, I know two things to be true. One, all people are made in God's image, no matter their stated identity, and therefore have immense value. And two, men are men and women are women. I hope social media platforms such as Twitter will see the value in truth and honor our free speech rights. 
which increasingly is not the case. Senator Rand Paul is urging Americans to resist any lockdown measures. He explains they can't arrest all of us. They can't keep all of our kids um, um, home from school. They can't keep every government building closed, although I've got a long list of ones that might um, that uh, might keep closed or might ought to keep closed. I'm quoting here. We don't have to accept the madness, lockdowns and harmful policies of the petty tyrants and bu- uh, bureaucrats. We can simply say no, not again. Again, quoting Senator Rand Paul, former President Obama's super spreader birthday bash ran for days. The media, normally down on such events, swooned for the former president. Dr. Fauci berated people who gathered at a motorcycle rally, but ignored the Obama gathering. Carol Markowitz uh, points out that Nancy Pelosi says she couldn't make Obama's party because she had so many other parties to attend. The pandemic is over. Listen to Nancy attend parties, she suggests. Meanwhile, Larry Elder is putting a genuine scare into California Governor Newsom. From uh, Tom Tradeup, he writes that as for Gavin Newsom, his Cinderella story in California politics may be headed to an unhappy ending thanks to the sage from South Central. Until Larry Elder tossed his hat into the race, the recall election forced by 1,718,000 signatures on petitions statewide left Newsom with little reason for concern as he could raise unlimited amounts of cash. Uh, to fight for retaining his office while challengers, mostly unknowns and also rands, are limited to spending $10 million each. In expensive media markets like Los Angeles and San Francisco, $10 million would not get you uh, very many 30-second spots in the, um, uh, in the um, Svengali movie show late at night on MeTV. But suddenly, Newsom's worst nightmare has emerged. Encouraged by powerful supporters like megachurch pastor Jack Hibbs and others, Larry Elder has rocketed to the top in the September 14th ballot. Larry Elder says Gavin Newsom is now attacking me directly because he's afraid I will win. Let's hold a debate. Say when and where I'll be there, Elder says. Well, John Fund says California Democrats could panic and seek to dispose of Newsom before the recall. If Newsom continues to appear vulnerable, some Democrats could openly call for abandoning him and trying to consolidate the state's Democrats around um, Pafrith. Republicans would then be under greater pressure to consolidate their support around one candidate to win the replacement vote. As with every political story, there is feverish speculation about even wilder scenarios. One suggests that if the recall seems inevitable, Democrats could pressure Newsom to suddenly resign, thus canceling the recall election and installing Lieutenant Governor Eleni uh, Kalinaskis, a Democrat, in the top job. Well, it could happen. An Arizona school district um, vows to force a mask mandate despite state law there. And this ABC News story, which doesn't mention how masks um, uh, can do more harm than good for kids, as some reports are now revealing, is fully on the side of the district. Uh, Dan McLaughlin says masks were a reasonable common sense mitigation strategy when nobody was vaccinated. It's over. Well, not quite. Meanwhile, Indiana University students are asking the Supreme Court to help them in their battle against the school mandating students be fully vaccinated. There are more suits on the way. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is uh, talking about going after Senator Chuck Schumer in the primaries, even though he's uh, shifted from 
um, way left to extreme left, it may not be enough to stave off the ambitions of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, my guess is she wants to hold on to power too much and won't uh, risk the possibility of losing to the um, the leader. A French marathon runner knocks down a row of water, taking the last one for himself. So much for sportsmanship as the runner in front of him grabs the water. The French runner uh, puts his hand out to knock over all of the others, but the last one in the video, you can see him um, taking the last one and the guy behind him reaching out and nothing is there. Now, if you're in the middle of a marathon, that sip of water can be a lifeline Um, I don't know if there'll be a penalty for that or some kind of uh, reprimand, but really bad form. Well, the left doesn't uh, know what the right hand is doing. 18 Republicans joined the Senate vote pushing the infrastructure bill closer to passage. And yet House Republicans use the government cause inflation as a campaign issue. Got to make up your mind there. Texas Democrats who fled voter integrity are suing Governor Abbott for trying to bring them back. And Obama is seen dancing maskless at his uh, birthday party at Martha's Vineyard, very co- um, where COVID numbers are high. Now, you might recall the CDC says wear a mask even when vaccinated in such areas. That was one of those areas. You can read more in the Washington Examiner. In six months... Uh, Enough uh, illegals uh, will have crossed the border to create the 10th largest city in the U.S., according to Just the News. And the Taliban has captured three provincial capitals in lightning offensives. In fact, the State Department is urging U.S. citizens to leave Afghanistan now. Around the nation, Hillsong's uh, founder has been charged with concealing his late father's alleged child sex abuse. Brian Houston says... The abuse concealment charges are a shock to him. You can read more about that in the Christian Post. And election cheating has um, surged to the top of the domestic issues list. Most 74% want photo ID. The infrastructure bill would require alcohol monitors for all new cars. And President Biden plans to announce a target for 50% electric vehicle sales as he unveils stricter emission rules. Facebook boots New York University disinformation researchers off its platform and critics are crying foul. Meanwhile, YouTube has suspended Sky News Australia for a year old video about masks and COVID-19. Well, on this day in history, let me find that list for you very quickly because I don't know. I kind of like the idea of knowing what happened years ago on this particular day. Can I find it? I don't know. Yeah, here we go. 1910, the U.S. Patent Office grants Alva Fisher of the Hurley Machine Company a patent for an electrically powered washing machine. 1936, Jesse Owens wins his fourth gold medal at the Berlin Olympics in the United States, taking first place in the 400-meter relay. 1944, more than 250 African-American sailors based in Port Chicago, California, refused to load a munitions ship following a cargo vessel explosion that killed 320 men, mostly black. Fifty of the sailors would be convicted of mutiny, fined, and imprisoned. 1945, three days after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, a U.S. B-29 superfortress codenamed Boxcar uh, drops a nuclear device, Fat Man, over Nagasaki, killing an estimated 74,000 people. 
1974, Vice President Gerald R. Ford becomes the nation's 38th chief executive as President Richard Nixon's resignation takes effect. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Craig, Dr. Craig Evans, author of Jesus and the Manuscripts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I'm so looking forward to a conversation with my guest, who's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. He points out that Jesus and in the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, it introduces readers to the diversity and complexity of the ancient literature that records the words and deeds of Jesus, or at least uh, purports to record them. This diverse literature includes the familiar Gospels of the New Testament, the much less familiar literature of the rabbis and the uh, Quran and the uh, extra canal. I can't even ever say this word correctly. The narratives and uh, brief snippets of material found in fragments and inscriptions. Well, in this significant book, well-known scholar and professor Dr. Craig Evans critically analyzes important texts and quotations in their original languages and engages in current scholarly discussion in exploring important questions such as those surrounding the relationship between the Gospel of Thomas and the New Testament Gospels. Well, my guest, Dr. Craig Evans, um, is the John Bisaggio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is the author or editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 television documentaries and news programs. I appreciate that he's carved out some time to talk with us here today regarding his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Evans. Hey, my privilege. Glad to be with you. Well, let me begin by asking you, um, to whom this book is written. It certainly is scholarly in its approach, but it's also approachable, I would think, to the average reader. To whom is this book written, and to whom do you recommend it? <laughs> well, of course, it is primarily uh, designed for uh, people who do serious Bible study and ask, they have inquiry minds, they want to know, hey, we're, 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 what are the manuscripts, and are they really reliable? How many do we have? How old are they? That sort of thing. But also a far more complex question is, what are the other manuscripts, the ones that are not in the New Testament, that uh, are outside the canon? What do they tell us about Jesus? And also, what about manuscript tradition that isn't Christian at all? And in your uh, uh, introductory comment, you noted that, you know, Jesus appears in the Koran. He appears in the Jewish Talmud. Uh, he appears in other traditions, pagan traditions. He's actually appealed to in magic texts. And so I wanted to review all of that, put it all between the covers of a single book. And so, yes, there is Greek and Hebrew and Latin, but it's always translated into English, which means mm-hmm. if if you're a serious reader, someone like you, of course, you can sit down, you might not know Greek or something like that, but you can read it. You can understand that there are 60 color images in the back. You, and you'll go away uh, knowing, oh, that's what this stuff is, and that's what it looks like, I see. So it isn't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the New Testament. You'll learn a lot more about them. But you'll learn about all these other manuscripts, too. And, I, and the reviews and the feedback I've received from people is very encouraging. 
Yeah, I appreciate your uh, reviewing the Gospels and the, the Scriptures in a much broader context, because most of us don't have that opportunity. So uh, I think we can appreciate the text of Scripture perhaps a bit more when we understand the broader context. Uh, I, I guess the first question is, can we trust the authenticity of the New Testament in light of everything that you cover in the book? Uh, can we trust the authenticity of it as it's presented uh, the canon that we have in our scriptures, and we'll talk about some of those uh, extra um, sources as well. Yes, and the answer, quick answer is yes, we can. And in part, uh, that's the purpose of this book, because you look at these other manuscript traditions, which many scholars will accept and say, oh, yes, you know, that that's probably correct, and oh, yes, that's probably reliable. Well, the New Testament manuscripts, the manuscripts for the New Testament Gospels are much stronger, they're older, they are numerous, and because we have everything so well attested, when scribes do make a mistake, and they do, these are handwritten, that's why they're called manuscripts, they're written Mm -hmm. by hand, scribes do make mistakes, but it isn't just as though we have only one copy of Matthew and it has mistakes in it, we have hundreds of copies. And so we can compare, and where the scribes make mistakes, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's so obvious. So we're able then to uh, get the text right. And by the way, our English Bibles and other foreign language translations are based on very competent, very carefully edited Greek New Testaments. And so when you're reading uh, in English or German or French or Spanish or whatever, uh, the New Testament Gospels, uh, you're reading what the evangelist originally wrote. There's no mistake about it. And so that's a big part of the purpose. So, yeah, to answer your question, the New Testament Gospels are uh, richly attested by ancient manuscripts, many manuscripts, and there really isn't any question about how these manuscripts originally read. You make reference to the Jewish Gospels, but you also say that you believe the Gospels were written for Christians. Can you explain those two things and the fact that it's not a conflict, but just clarify what that means? Well, yeah, it's a very good question, and and it's still a little bit, uh, even today, with all that we have, enshrouded in mystery. But uh, there were what we call the Jewish Gospels. We don't know how many there really were. We think they were closely related to the Gospel of Matthew. And these were uh, Jewish groups that believed in Jesus, but not quite the way the mainstream church did. And so they saw him as uh, the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Uh, they might not have quite seen it, Jesus as divine, or maybe almost. You know, we, we just don't know because none of these Gospels survive. But we know that they existed because church fathers talk about them and quote them sometimes when they read a little differently. And so that's an interesting question right there. And I wanted to, to devote an entire chapter to talking about these lost Jewish Gospels that survive only uh, as quotations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you believe the Gospels were written for Christians, and of course Christians can be both Jew and Gentile. Um, explain why you believe they were written for Christians. Well, yes, and uh, you know, among some scholars they think, well, Matthew wrote for a particular group of Christians, and John wrote for a particular group, and there could be some truth to that. In other words, when Matthew writes his gospel, the evangelist is in a particular setting. I think he's in a setting where uh, 
Jewish people who are not Christians, who do not believe in Jesus, are raising all kinds of questions about, does Jesus really fulfill the law? Does he really fulfill prophecy? And the evangelist is saying, yes, he really does. And so tells the story in a way that speaks to that. So I think there's truth to that. But I think the Gospels also uh, were widely circulated. And so by the time we get into the early second century, uh, Christian churches, local churches all over the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, were aware of all four of the Gospels, not just one of them. And so in that sense, they were, I think, very much designed to be read by all Christians. But also at the same time, they're being written so that non-Christians, people on the outside looking in and have questions, can read them and, and learn more about Jesus and then hopefully be drawn into the church. You've made several references to the book of Matthew, and you write um, in Jesus and the Manuscripts that the book of Matthew enjoyed pride of place in the uh, fourfold gospel collection. I think for many of us, we look at the gospel of John today as sort of the uh, the pinnacle. Explain how, how Matthew did enjoy a, a pride of place uh, in the early church. Well, you know, that's easily documented. Uh, for one thing, Matthew gets referenced more than any other gospel. When you look at the church fathers, all of the writings in the second and third centuries, when the church wasn't even legal yet in the Roman Empire, Matthew is the gospel. Matthew is probably quoted more often than uh, Mark, Luke, John combined. So uh, Matthew is extremely important. And then when you count the manuscripts that survive, the oldest fragments and pieces and so on of papyrus, Matthew is again in first place, although that's where John rival. John closely rivals Matthew in Egypt. And so Matthew was the most prominent. And you can think about it. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three that cover the same ground very similarly. They're so close, they're called the synoptic gospels, meaning you can see them together. And, uh, and Matthew is the one that has apostolic authorship. Mark doesn't, and neither does Luke. So I think that's a reason why, too. And then Matthew is a great bridge between the Old Testament and the New by quoting the Old Testament and showing how uh, Jesus bridges, you might say, the Old Testament and the New Testament church. So that's another reason. But John, you know, John really was up there close in a close second place, very popular uh, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, especially where we have so many manuscripts. But, you know, the Jesus in John looks and sounds very, very different, very metaphorical, very mysterious. And, and some church fathers found that off-putting. They weren't even sure if John should be in the canon. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans. The book is Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. His fascinating book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. Well, let's talk about the oldest texts. Uh, your book deals with the oldest manuscripts inside and outside the Christian canon. Uh, what are some of the conclusions that you have come to uh, having studied uh, this and presenting it in your book? Well, we have uh, some very old manuscripts we have fragments that date back to within 100 years, maybe even less than 100 years. 
from the time when the originals were written. That's an extraordinary record mm-hmm. of preservation. But also, we have reason to believe that the originals were in circulation for a long time. And, and w- why do we know that? Well, it's because church fathers talk about the originals, the what we call the autographs, the actual manuscript written in the very hand of the author. Uh, they say that Matthew exists. For example, uh, there's a tradition that uh, the John, the original John, the autograph John, was in circulation for over one over 200 years, and that you think, wow, that that can't, how can that be? Or Paul's letters, Tertullian at the end of the second century is talking about the originals that, that Paul himself wrote still in existence. Well, we have evidence because pagans say the same thing. They talk about uh, autographs by Aristotle, for example, still in existence 250 years after they were originally written. Then we have archaeological evidence, and the eruption at Mount Vesuvius is a good case in point. We know when these manuscripts came to a sudden end, and that was in the year 79 when Vesuvius erupted. Well, we can x-ray the manuscripts. They're preserved. They were turned into carbon. We can't unroll them. They would crumble, but we can x-ray them and use MRI technology. And so we're able to reconstruct them digitally and look at the handwriting, and that can be dated. And it turns out many of these were 200 and 300 years old when Vesuvius erupted. And it makes sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. Georgine, you know, you and I can buy for $10 a paperback at the airport. You know, nobody could buy a book that cheap in antiquity. Books were terribly expensive. And so nobody threw them away. Uh, The books were really old before you finally discarded them. And so the idea that a book would be in use for 100, 200 years, 300 years, really isn't that unusual. And Christians treasured the writings of the apostles. So if the originals were in existence for 200 years, that controls the text. If you have any doubt about, well, how does Romans read here, or how does Matthew read here, you can consult with the original. And so that had a stabilizing effect on the text. And that's why I have great confidence that the New Testament text has been well preserved. And so these theories that are popular out and about, you know, somebody changed the text, who knows what Jesus really said or did, those theories have no basis in the evidence. We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Let's talk about some of the uh, uh, Gospels, if you will, that were not included in the Christian canon. Um, What became of the Gospel of Thomas, and why is it not part of the New Testament? Well, it's not part of the New Testament, number one, I believe, because the uh, person who composed it didn't want it to be in the New Testament. And that's not hard. It doesn't take any special calculation to to come up to, with that conclusion. In the opening line, it says, these are the secret words of the living Jesus, which Judas Thomas wrote down. Well, you know, when you say these are the secret words, you're saying they're not the public words. And uh, the, the books that were uh, in the canon of Scripture were the books that were read publicly in church. Well, we know that because the the uh, written records all say that. And so church fathers will say, well, you can read in public, you can read in the church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you sh- 
should not read these other writings, which are false, etc., and so on. So we all know those that was the standard for canonicity. And so when Thomas is written sometime in the second century, I think in the late second century, he says these are the secret words. Right away he's making a statement. He doesn't see his work as canonical at all. And so it's a secret writing which is supposed to correct, update, supplement, something like that. The public Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other thing, uh, too, Georgine, is that uh, the, the New Testament Gospels clearly mirror the early first century in the land of Israel. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas mirrors or reflects second century Syria. The ideas there, the asceticism, the esotericism, and things like that. And so there's, you, you know, as one scholar put it, if all we had was the Gospel of Thomas, would we even know that Jesus was Jewish? Mm. And I think, you know, that just gives away the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you refer to a fifth gospel, the Gospel of Peter. And first of all, why is it called the Cross Gospel, and why wasn't that included in the Christian canon? Well, in this particular case, the gospel doesn't ca- claim to be secret, so it's very open to being read. And by the way, it actually was read in some of the churches in Syria in the second century. A careless bishop, uh, he didn't mind, and then he later realized his name was Serapion. He go, oops, wait a minute, he read it and realized this thing's got crazy stuff in it. And then he told uh, the churches, stop reading it. In other words, don't treat it as if it's canonical scripture. The reason it's called the cross gospel is because when Jesus uh, comes out of the tomb in the resurrection account, the cross comes out with him. That is very mysterious. And by the way, that, re- that gives it away. That, that was of great interest in some circles in the second century. The idea that the cross somehow is alive and it accompanies Jesus, goes to heaven with him, and will come back from heaven with him when he returns. And, of course, Jesus' head is real tall. It reaches all the way up into the clouds. So this is a, a wild embellishment of the story. I think it's reckless apologetic. It's trying to impress unbelievers, trying to answer the question, of, you know, why are the New Testament Gospels so subdued? You know, two frightened women go to the empty tomb on Easter. Why isn't your account more impressive? Well, Peter's giving a very impressive account, and that's why it doesn't really rival the New Testament Gospels, and it certainly shouldn't be in the canon of Scripture. Uh, You mentioned earlier there are rumors floating about about not only the Gospels, but the character of Jesus himself. Is there any real evidence whatsoever that Jesus was either married or encouraged homosexual behavior, as some today uh, have argued is the case? There's not a shred of evidence of that nature. It's, it's, all, it's a modern thing, the idea that uh, you know Jesus might have had a special relationship with Mary, This is all cooked up and modern. Some will say, well, wait a minute, aren't there some uh, Gnostic Gospels from the 2nd and 3rd centuries that say that? Well, actually not. If you understand Gnosticism and what the Gospel of Mary, for example, or the Gospel of Philip, if you understand what they actually say, uh, all they're claiming is that Mary was a disciple. And this is a, uh, a, a custom, it's an ordinary strategy back in the day, If you want Jesus to say something brand new that is very suspicious, something that we never heard him say anywhere else, like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you write a new gospel and you attribute it to somebody 
who's lesser known. And so you attribute it to Philip or to Mary or to Thomas or somebody else. That's how you smuggle into the Jesus tradition stuff that Jesus never taught. But even the Gnostics who did that, the knowers, the ones who wanted to know special stuff, even they never thought for a moment that Jesus had a physical relationship with Mary or any other woman. And this other text, this fragment that was much talked about just a few years ago, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, is a modern hoax inspired by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. So no, there, there's nothing to it. A secret mark that supposedly has a naked Jesus, you know, uh, instructing a nude youth in, in the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's a modern fiction as well. Again, reflecting modern interests in sexuality and nothing to do with antiquity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. He is the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. You have a chapter titled Jesus in Small Texts. Uh, tell us a, a bit about uh, what the small texts are and why they're important in uh, in understanding who Jesus is and uh, the reliability of Scripture and the whole context of uh, the truth of this history. Well, thanks for asking about that chapter. Chapter 10, it was the hardest one to write because everything in it is so diverse. Uh, I I wanted to, uh, you know, the book was getting awfully long, but I wanted to include some of these interesting things. Jesus, you know, there are stories and teachings inscribed in stone, inscribed in metal, inscribed on pieces of leather, uh, fragments, uh, uh, bowls, ceramic bowls. It goes on and on. Jesus appears in so many different text forms, and so I wanted to gather it all together. And a lot of this is pagan, by the way. Some of it is Jewish, and some of it is Christian. So what I call it small text, I'm referring to either the text originally was small, one sentence or maybe a paragraph, or it's just a small fragment of what would have been a larger text. And it comes in all kinds of varieties. And in fact, two of these texts could actually date from the first century, which would be very early. We have Jesus' name inscribed on a bone box, the controversial James box. If it does refer to Jesus and his family, well, then that's a very early date. We can precisely date it to the year 63, one year after James, the brother of Jesus, died. It's written in Aramaic, and it says, James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And that would be quite possibly the earliest surviving artifact where Jesus's name is written. Mm. We also have what may be a reference to Jesus as Christ, written on a magician's cup sometime in the middle uh, of the uh, first century. That's really interesting. That's a pagan cup, and some pagan magician thinks he can improve the potency, the power of his magic, by writing Christ on his magic cup. Uh, We have a, a magical text from Egypt written on papyrus that refers to Jesus as the God of the Hebrews, quite possibly as early as the 60s, 
or, or so of the first century. So these are three examples where Jesus shows up and it's not even Christian and, uh, and <clears throat> where his name is mentioned. So I wanted to cover all that ground. Now, some of it, uh, some of it is spurious and medieval, and I wanted to note that too. Mm-hmm. Some think they have the fragment of the uh, title that was on the cross that said Jesus king of the jews i think that's a forgery but that's what this uh chapter covers i think readers will find it fascinating jesus is talked about everywhere in the ancient world well i do think it's fascinating because we might hear rumors of this or that and to put it in its proper context the source the origin and so on i think helps us all understand and appreciate as i mentioned earlier in our conversation understand the veracity of scripture um now we're we're almost out of time so i want to ask the broad question of what you hope your reader will take away from jesus and the manuscripts um if they're questioning the uh, reliability of scripture if they're questioning other sources or 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 uh, wonder about other sources in which Jesus is referenced or the Gospels are are, um, are referenced. What do you hope your reader takes away from what I think is a serious and rigorous um, review of the evidence uh, of the Christian canon and other uh, sources that make reference to Jesus and the Gospel? Well, that's a great question, and you've practically answered it in the way you raised the question. I want readers to know that there is rigorous study. And so uh, when we talk about the New Testament Gospels or the words of Jesus, this isn't some kind of mushy-headed pie-in-the-sky stuff. There's real serious scholarship behind it. There's real evidence and lots of it. And so when we talk about the Gospels preserving the words of Jesus and his deeds, we know what we're talking about on the basis not of piety and faith, but on the basis of hard evidence. And when people like Dan Brown write silly books, they need to know that that's exactly what they are. They're silly books. Uh, and this stuff like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Peter, yeah, it's it's stuff that was written a long time ago, but nobody took it seriously because it doesn't really reflect the historical Jesus. And that's not just a pious, dogmatic opinion, but it's based on careful research. Well, I just want to thank you for the careful research that you have done and making it presentable for those of us who are not scholars to better understand um, what's out there, to put it in its proper context, and I think uh, regard the scriptures um, as highly as we ought, as reliable and a source uh, for wisdom and faith. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Once again, the title of the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. The book is published by Hendrickson. I'll also have uh, the link um, on my Facebook page uh, for the show. So if you happen to be in your car and you didn't catch that, um, do catch it. And I want to also encourage you, um, I think you might find it approachable. It is scholarly. It does cover a lot of material. But if you take your time, I think you'll find it very useful in uh, in understanding the broader context of um uh, of the Gospels. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.